0: I am Emily. I am your Minister of Children and Students here at Hope Ankeny. And that's kind of a weird first scene to start out with after coming off of this amazing Easter that we just had last weekend. Wasn't it fantastic? Oh my gosh, it was so great. Yeah, praise God. It is the pinnacle of the year for Jesus people when we get to come together and celebrate that the tomb was empty. It's so cool. But I, but I have to admit, at the, at the start of Scott's sermon, I got a little distracted. So you may recall that, that Scott was using Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, this like quantum physics thing, to illustrate to us that like we expected Jesus to be in the tomb. That was the most likely place. And yet somehow there was this unlikely but possible thing that Jesus wasn't in the tomb anymore that he was somewhere else, that he was alive. And I bet a lot of you were like tracking right along with him, right? You were like, it's all about Jesus, and this is great. But I got a little distracted because I was like, I like this. I like this uncertainty principle. It explains something to me that I've never understood. Now I know why I have so many orphan socks, (laughs) right? I expect them. They most likely would be in the dryer where I put them, and yet somehow some of them end up in this little alpine village called Unlikely But Possible. (laughs) Crazy, right? Okay, so if you don't know what I'm talking about, and I just seem like a weirdo up here, you got to go back and watch Pastor Scott's sermon on YouTube, and then you can decide if he's funnier or if I am, but I stole his joke, so I guess he wins. But yeah, we come off this like amazing, wonderful, exciting time when we declare that Jesus is alive and death has been conquered. And now we're going to come back the following week to talk about the end of the world. End times? Really? And then you're going to send in your, your family minister? I mean, Book of Eli is just one example. Have you ever seen a movie about the end times that was family-friendly I don't think so, but the thing is that actually there can be a lot of hope to be found when we talk about the end times. And if you came last week, or if you tuned in online, or if you heard a message at another church, and, it, and you decided that you were going to be open to the possibility that Jesus came out of the grave, if you're you're open to the possibility that God loves you so much that he came in person and was willing to die an excruciating death to prove it, if if you're back this weekend because there is a possibility that those things that happened 2,000 years ago could still make a difference in your life today, then I am so glad you're here. Because even though this topic is tough and kind of strange in some ways, I really believe that it can make a difference in our everyday lives, that it can affirm our faith for us, that it can help us grow. I believe that the hope that we have in Jesus has the power to change lives. So I'm glad you're here, and I will try to make this interesting topic as understandable as possible, because it is a little kooky. So when we're trying to understand things about God, sometimes we use like really big words that sometimes you know what they are and sometimes it's like, what is that? So I want to explain some of these big words in ways that hopefully you can use so that nobody can flex on you and start using crazy words that don't make any sense to you. So when we're talking about the study of the nature of God and religious belief, so when we're thinking about who God is and how we are intended to relate to God, we call that the study of theology. And our theology, our ideas about who God is and how we relate to God, they're, it's informed by a number of things. And probably primary, the most important first thing is the Bible. So um, here's why this book contains the record of like maybe as much as like 10,000 or more years of humans humans interacting with the divine. It is a record of millennia of how God related to people. So naturally, we, we get a lot of our ideas about who God is and how we're supposed to relate to God from this book. But if we're talking about an almighty, infinite God that's all over the place all the time, Could God really be contained in this one book? I think not. I think we need our theology to be meaningful in more ways than just that. So we also know that God created everything. And so when we look around at the order of creation, at the way that the world was made and the way that it works, there are things that we can come to understand about God's nature and God's intentions for us that way. And then in addition to that, We believe that we are made in God's image. We have been given an intellect and reasoning and logic, right? So we don't want to be checking our brains at the door when we come into church. As a matter of fact, we want that to be part of what informs our ideas of who God is and how we we are to interact with God. And since we are made in God's image, when we recognize things that are distinct, about humankind. Well, those are clues about the nature of God as well. So we take all of these different things and we put them together to try and understand better who God is and how we are to relate to to him. And we want it to be meaningful, not just in a theoretical, academic way, we want it to be meaningful in a way that matters in our lived lives. So, when it comes to theology, there are different threads of theology that have special names and that are very specific that people study and they have oftentimes very fancy names to go with it like Christology and well, today's topic it's called eschatology. And if you have heard people talk about eschatology, it's possible that that might make you a little anxious because It can seem very out there, but in fact, I don't think that it has to be that way. The fancy name eschatology, it actually has a simpler meaning than you might think. We get eschatology from this Greek word, eschatos, and eschatos means final or last. So when you put this together, eschatology is the theology of what happens at the end the end of human life, and also the end of the created world. And scripture has a lot of different things that it says about the end times. And a lot of the things that scripture says are pretty vague and contain a ton of symbolism. And that's a little tricky because we don't live in the same age, in the same world, as the people who... God was talking to you when God gave those ideas about the end times. So that vagueness and that symbolism makes it kind of a a really rich puzzle. And some people will spend their whole lives trying to put all those pieces together to try and understand exactly a picture of how this is all going to unfold and what it's going to look like and what color the curtains in heaven might be. And if you go out on the Internet and you Google eschatology, you will find there are a lot of rabbit trails that you can follow. So many, in fact, that if I were to try and explain every possible theory about it, it would be very time-consuming and, and even more boring than what I've already said. So I want to try and explain an a, a idea about eschatology that makes sense, it makes a lot of sense to me because it, it aligns with how I have experienced nature, how reasoning works together. It just makes sense to me. And so I'm hoping that it'll be helpful and make sense to you. And it's, it's relatively simple, and our story today can help inform that. So we're going to work on that together in this way. Um, when he was telling this story, Jesus was doing something that he would often do for his disciples, which is to try and make sense of how human existence relates to God's existence. How the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth relate to each other. Because obviously they relate, but they're separate. So I understand things best with timelines. I love seeing how like, events interact with each other. So I'm going to start with a timeline here. And at the time of our story, uh, the Old Testament has all already happened. Uh, The the foretelling of Jesus coming, the uh, rescue of the Hebrew people, the formation of the nation um, of the ancient Hebrew people, we believe that God's the one that created everything. So it started in creation, and Jesus has arrived. So... So this is where we're at. Now, when you are trying to understand a story, especially in the gospels, one of the things that's very helpful to make sense of it is if you don't just read that story, but if you actually go back and see what happened right before that story and what happens right after that story. And a lot of times the stories that you read make a lot more sense once you see where they fit in the gospel narrative. So in the chapter before the story of the bridesmaids that you heard read, the disciples have asked Jesus when he's going to come again. So at this point, the disciples have caught on that Jesus is here, but he's going to leave and he's going to come back again. And what, of course, they're looking forward to is that when that happens, that is going to be the start of the kingdom of God. That is when heaven is going to start. But instead of giving the disciples a day and a time like they're asking for, Jesus does something that he's, he's kind of famous for doing, which is when someone asks him a hard question, he doesn't answer it. He tells stories instead. So what we heard is one of those stories that Jesus told in answer to that question of when are you going to come back. And it goes like this. It's not a long story, and I'm not going to be able to talk about every possible interpretation you can pull from this story. So I'm going to read it again, and if there's anything you notice that I don't talk about, I invite you to t- talk it over with the people you go to lunch with, because it is, it is rich, and there is a lot that you could gain from, from this story. So the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 bridesmaids who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The five who were foolish didn't take enough oil for their lamps. But the other five were wise enough to take along extra oil. When the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, they were roused by the shout, look, the bridegroom is coming, come out and meet him. All the bridesmaids got up and prepared their lamps. Then the five foolish ones asked the others, Please give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. But the others replied, We don't have enough oil for all of us. Go to the shop and buy some more oil. But while they were gone to buy the oil, the bridegroom came. Then those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was locked. Later, the other five bridesmaids returned. and They stood outside calling, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he called back, believe me, I don't know you. So you too must keep watch, for you do not know the day or hour of my return. So Jesus is answering a different question than what they asked. They want him to pinpoint a spot on the time-space continuum where they're like, we want to come meet you here again. But Jesus, instead of giving them a shortcut, Jesus actually tells them a story to prepare them to live in the in-between, in this time between. He says, you're going to be bridesmaids. You're going to need to keep your lamps lit. And I'm the bridegroom who's going to be late. That's the story that Jesus uses when they ask him when he's coming back. It's going to take longer than you think, and there is more for you to do than just nap. So this timeline that I've drawn, it's actually a diagram of an understanding of last things that's called inaugurated eschatology. And I just think that it makes such sense that I wanted to be able to share this with you. You know, I spelled this right at 8 o'clock and there was no camera on me. <laughs> so we'll see how I can do, right? Inaugurated. There we go. All right. So you know what an inauguration is, because we do it every four years, right? It's the start of something, and then eschatology last things. So inaugurated eschatology simply means that the end has already begun. The end is already begun. And this makes sense because Jesus said things about this. He said the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Not the kingdom of heaven is way down the road. He suggested that it was close. And then there are so much evidence that Jesus' life and death and resurrection started something new. Because People were healed, and relationships were restored, and things were made right. Something was happening. But at the same time, not everyone was healed. Not everything was made right. So the kingdom was breaking in, but it wasn't full and complete yet. With his story, Jesus is preparing his followers to live in an age where Jesus' promises of wholeness and restoration are becoming realized, but where the brokenness, where the sorrow, where earthly life is still the norm. And you know from your own lives that this is still the age in which we live. The resurrection was a taste of the kingdom of God. And that kingdom of God will continue to break through sometimes. But it's not full, it's not complete. We are still stuck in the pain and the sorrow and the messiness of earthly life. But despite that, you guys, this is really good news. Because you know what this means? This means that we can hope for, I mean, We can expect miracles to happen. We can expect that sometimes people who are sick and in pain will be healed. We can expect that sometimes our love will prevail. We can hope and expect that even though we will sometimes get caught in addiction, in hang ups, in trauma. Those things will happen, but we can find a way out. Because the kingdom of heaven is already breaking through. And so that is another name that theologians give to inaugurated eschatology. And if you can't remember inaugurated eschatology, you can probably remember that we're in the already, not yet. Already not yet, and many theologians draw better pictures of it than I do, so you have you have one there. the grace and wholeness of god 's kingdom it can be experienced partially now while we wait for Jesus to come back and bring it back in its fullness and if you 're not into timelines, I really think that this is a helpful um, a helpful way to think about things, so uh, anybody into Venn diagrams? They're kind of popular right now, right? So if you do this as a Venn diagram, this is the kingdom of heaven, and this is the earthly realm, and there are very few places where heaven and earth exist together. In the Old Testament, it was only in the temple. That was the one holy spot where heaven and earth existed together. When Jesus came, Heaven and earth existed together in the person of Jesus. And now, since Jesus' followers are reunited with God and given the Holy Spirit, one of the things that we get to see is that the kingdom of heaven shows up here and there. One more. All over the place. Because wherever followers of Jesus are spreading light and love, people are getting a glimpse of heaven. I get to give people a glimpse of glory, and you get to give people a glimpse of the kingdom of God. It's amazing, isn't it? It's actually our job description. You heard about that in baptism earlier, right? Because One of the most important teachings that Jesus gave, where he was really digging down and teaching us how to be people of God, was the Sermon on the Mount, back in Matthew 5. And part of that Sermon on the Mount, he says, "'You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket.' Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it can light, give light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. The bridesmaids need enough oil to keep their lamps burning because that is our job, to spread light. To bring the kingdom of heaven to earth and point others to God's love and grace. We get to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth when we do that. It's just amazing. And a, a really powerful illustration of how that works is in this book that I've been reading recently by a sociologist named Rodney Stark. And um, so, yeah, the sociology of the rise of early Christianity, that's a really fun read for me. Nothing nerdy here. Um, he actually uses the science of sociology to try and examine why Christianity bloomed when it did. And it's, a, it's just so cool to see how God and, and people work together for this. He was curious because Christianity was this obscure messianic cult that ended up becoming the dominant faith of Western civilization. So he takes the statistics and the principles of sociology, and he applies them to what he can find of the historical record of how Christianity emerged. And now, as a person of faith, I, of course, attribute the, the rise of Christianity to the movement of the Holy Spirit, to God's desire for Christianity to become made known. But it is very interesting how Stark discovers that there are some very practical reasons that made Christianity appealing and how there were there were considerations and situations that set the stage for people to be responsive to the Holy Spirit and to Christianity. Because here's the thing, what most of it boils down to is that The bridesmaids kept their torches lit. Christians kept bringing the kingdom of heaven down to earth in ways that had a tangible impact that could not go unnoticed. And this is where what happens at the end makes a big difference in your daily lives because Christians, their faith in what was going to happen at the end of their lives that God had it covered made them Fearless of death. And in an era where people were lucky to live 30 years, and 30 years that were full of illness and injury and misery, believing that death was not scary totally changed how Christians reacted to things. So take, for instance, the plagues. When the plagues would come through, if you got sick, even if you didn't have the plague, it didn't matter. If you got sick, everybody was afraid to get it from you. And so families would just completely abandon their own to, to die of the plague. And if somebody does that, even if you have an illness that you could survive, if nobody's around to give you some water and feed you some food, you're a goner. But Christians weren't afraid of death. So when one of their people got sick with the plague, they just they cared for them. They took care of them. And that meant that more Christians survived the plague than the general population. So relativity-wise, the numbers of Christians increased every time a wave of plague went through. But on top of that, there were all these non-Christians who got sick and their people abandoned them. And the Christians, because they weren't afraid, would go in and nurse them too, which created a whole bunch of people who were survivors of the plague because of how Christians had brought the kingdom to their lives. And those people were very receptive to becoming part of a movement that would bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. Another thing that was unique about Christians, just simple things like, like Jesus taught us to value life. And so Christians were like way ahead of the curve on recognizing the full humanity of women and banning the practice of infanticide which meant that the health and the lives of women were improved and, therefore, the lives of children were improved and, therefore, the lives of entire families were improved. So much so that a historian named A.R. Byrne, he analyzed inscriptions from this era and he concluded that in an age where most people lived 30 years, Christians lived longer. It made an impact on everyday lives, what Christians believed about what was going to happen at the end. Sometimes we think eschatology only matters once we're dead. Sometimes we think Christianity only matters after we die. But the only people I know of that can tell me for sure what happens after you die, they're already dead right? So I find that the reason why I have such a robust faith in what's going to happen after I die is because of the ways I keep seeing the kingdom break through in my everyday life. I am utterly convinced that I live in the care of a creator who loves me and that that is now and forever. So when I was thinking this week about how to explain why it matters in our daily lives that Jesus is going to come back someday, there was a tough season of life that came to mind for me, and it started with the dad of one of my really close friends, Um, one of those, like, unicorn friends where her husband and my husband actually like each other. Crazy, right? And then our kids have grown up together, and they even like each other. So even though we live in different states, we've just stayed close all through the years. So it hit me really hard, obviously it hit her harder, when she let me know that her dad, they had found spots on his liver. And when they went and checked him out, it turned out that he had tumors all through his body and in his brain. And it was really hard news to hear that they only gave him a six-month prognosis. And they were going to use as much chemo and radiation as they could to keep him living as long as possible, but they, they were pretty sure that six months was going to be it. And my friend's parents, uh, they, were, they were a little older, and they had lived in this huge Victorian house for decades. And you know how it is when you got a big house, right? You just, like, accumulate more stuff. So from cellar to attic, this house was just packed full of all of the things that they had accumulated together throughout their life. And so we were really worried about her mom because we just couldn't imagine what it would be like for her to have to endure losing her husband and then having to deal with this huge, old, overwhelming house. So my family decided this is what we were doing for spring break. We went to visit them and just to do whatever we could to help. And so we, like, we painted some rooms and we helped get a bunch of old scrap wood out of her dad's workshop down in the basement. And you know what was kind of crazy? We laughed a lot that week. We savored that time together. And my friends' family, like they are so warm and kind and quirky. <laughs> they, of course, even in this sorrow, we could laugh. But underneath that all, we were so sad because this was so unfair. My friend at one point, she said, she was like, you know, I'm just having a lot of doubt right now about what really happens after we die, because this just doesn't make any sense. And I was like, yeah, this is utterly ridiculous. I completely agree with you. You guys, my friend's dad, he was a middle school teacher. You guys know how I feel about middle school? About people who love middle schoolers? He was amazing. He loved nature, he loved creation. He lived every day trying to make the world around him better, trying to make the lives around him better. I couldn't think of anything more unfair. And he even in thanks for our help around his house, he made us this Scrap wood thing with made of found things, and I mean, I still keep it on my mantle. It's a total, total treasure to me. My friend's dad was bringing heaven to earth all the time, every day. So, there was only one thing that really made sense to me about his prognosis, and that was that the end for him, wasn't really the end. And it wasn't really the beginning either. Because in him, the kingdom of heaven was already here. And it was going to go on forever. But you know how these things go. It turned out hanging out with my friend's family through that season was just preparation for our own. Because it just wasn't that much longer after that when My mother-in-law was diagnosed. And they gave her a nine-month prognosis. And those were really, really hard months to walk through that together with her because she couldn't tolerate any treatment. And so as we prayed for her and cared for her, every hard day that she got through, all she earned from that was another hard day after it. And it was seven years ago this fall that we prayed our last prayers with her. And that was so hard. But you know what? I take comfort. I take comfort in knowing that she is no longer struggling, that she is no longer in pain, and that she is in the care of a loving creator. Because you know what happened with my friend's dad? He had a six-month prognosis, but he actually lived long enough to completely max out all of the chemo and radiation they will give a person. So it was well past his six-month prognosis when the doctors came to them and said, we have nothing left that we can do for these stubborn tumors that won't go away. And yet they were right, because my friend's dad is still living with those tumors. And they haven't grown since. Isn't that amazing? I praise God for that. Yeah. So why would I share these stories that are so hard to tell? I got my tissue, just in case, in my pocket. Because I know you have those stories, too. And some of you are getting answers that you want, and some of you aren't. And we prayed, like you have, for both of our parents. And we took care of both of our parents the best that we could. And both of our parents were people of faith who loved their families and wanted to see their grandkids grow up. And one got a miracle and one didn't. But you know what? We could have, we should have lost both of them. But I praise God that one of my best friends, she sits on the sidelines of soccer games, and her dad is in the bag chair next to her. And that is amazing, because that's what this is, you guys. This is the already, but not yet. This is that time where we get to see miracles sometimes. And I just think, what a glorious, reunion it is going to be when these two realms come together and both of those parents are going to be whole and healthy and we are all going to be reunited and brought together and it is going to be whole and complete again and i have seen glimpses of it already so i know that it's coming because god is a promise keeper and jesus said he was coming back And I believe him. So I'm going to pack my oil and I'm going to keep my lamp lit. Because if it breaks your heart to think of someone dying without knowing the good news, it also breaks my heart that someone would have to live through this tough and difficult life without the hope of knowing that the kingdom of heaven is near that miracles can happen and that the best is yet to come. Church, let us shine our lights.